Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, good day. I say good day because it's late morning for me. It's it's approaching the dinner hour for you in the UK, right? Dun 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 dun. Hey Scott. Yeah, it's it's it is. The day has just poof. It was like poof and it was lunchtime and now poof and it's it's late in the afternoon on a Friday. What better way to end the week? Exactly. And it's been a big week than to, you know, get on the phone with the one, the only, the inimitable Scott Kent Jones. Yeah, an inimitable. I, I love that term, inimitable. Believe me, no one could imitate. Often imitated, <laughs> never duplicated. Yeah, this is uh, so we're in different times. When is tea time? Do you do tea time? Because you're tea time. That's, yeah, yeah. Tea time is sort of mid afternoon. I would love that. I would love if you just like if like people just were like tea today. Let's let's go have tea. That sounds like a nice way to break up the afternoon. Afternoon tea. Have you, are you an afternoon tea fan? I am drinking it more. I I am drinking tea a little more. And in, in no, 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 no. Okay, so it's, it's a backup. No, no. So here in the UK, I mean, afternoon tea is is a specific thing. It's not it's not tea in the afternoon. It's afternoon tea. So it's like it's like it's like a, a, a an event. It's a cultural. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A- afternoon tea. I mean. You know, high afternoon tea includes champagne, but ordinary afternoon tea, it begins with savory. So like little finger sandwiches, cucumber sandwiches, that kind of thing. And then it moves into sweet where you have the scones with clotted cream and jam and other. That sounds little, fantastic. Little cakes. Have you never done this? No, never. Oh not God. once. Not okay. once. So, so I mean, next time you are in my part of the world here. We're gonna go for afternoon tea. I would, and, I would love it. High tea with and, champagne. And and I mean the 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 way to do it right is we go to you know one of the one of the kind of the grand hotels in London like the Savoy, or the Mandarin Oriental, or the Dorchester, and and they all do afternoon tea, and it's ridiculously expensive and oh like impossibly pretentious. But it is also, you know, kind of as, as many finger sandwiches as you can eat. And it's really, really good. Do you think the queen does afternoon tea like pretty much every day? <laughs> she could never maintain that svelte waistline if she did that. She's never going to die. It's like she, Charles must be like, look, I love you. But I mean, gosh, like I want my shot. She's never going to die. I mean, she looks I mean, so she has so much energy. I mean, the, the English probably did find the fountain of youth on their, you know, on, on their, uh, you know, during their colonial history. And they and, and they've like built and they transported the Buckingham Palace and she probably sips from it on a daily basis. Yeah, because and, she is. And so death for her is kind of an optional thing when she's decided yeah. that she's done. Yeah, and Philip, too. I mean, he looks like, you know, he's kicking it. He looks vibrant, you know, for his <laughs> uh-huh. age. I mean. He doesn't look, you know, it, well, Donald Trump, of course, is the youngest person alive. You see, he said that, the other, you know, they asked him about Joe Biden's age. He said, I don't know, but I'm young. I'm like the youngest person alive. I'm so young. <laughs> and everybody just stands there. Journalists like, oh, you just said he's the youngest person alive. Like, like, or then he said, they asked him about his, his, his response last year at Charlottesville. And he said, well, look, I was defending the people, defending General Lee. And I talked to some generals and they all said, Generally, in the way they all considered generals, and, and everybody just pretends that that conversation happened. Like, oh, okay, the president just said he pulled the generals. You know, that's what he does. Walks in the Situation Room. I know, I know, we got a problem in Syria, but first, where are we at with General Lee, Robert E. Lee? Where, aside from the fact that General Lee, like, was not was not a great person, and and was not a great general, and Gettysburg kind of you know gambled a lot, and I mean, yeah, I don't know. But that's the country I live in now. We're you could just say whatever it, you want. And there is something, you know, that we are living through. And I guess to, you know, you and me, men of a certain age, it still strikes us as 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 jarring that there is no more kind of arbiter of 
I don't want to say truth, but a kind of, you know, there, there's just no more gatekeeper on on what is what can be said and what just can't be said because you would be, you know, shut down or ridiculed for saying it. And this kind of unhingedness from the norms of the past, it's... I, I mean, I know this is all stuff that we've we've tread over before, but it, it does seem that there is still this kind of difficulty to to get to, to catch up with how um what's the ad, what's the adjective I'm looking for or 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 the verb like it's not impetuous but kind of the not audacity with which it's possible to just say anything. Yeah, I mean, and there's 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 a cavalierness to it all. Cavalierness, maybe that's a good word. And and there's we should have there's a casual have, relationship with the truth, like like. <laughs> okay, okay I'll just sorry. We're gonna add add this to you know our our pre show notes. We're gonna have an we're gonna have to come up with another new recurring segment, which is um, I don't know what we'll call it. One of our listeners can tell us, but like when when you find the exact appropriate English word for something. By the way, following up on Dungeons and Dragons, the Cavalier is a class. In the advanced expansion, it's a new class. The Cavalier. Are you still are you still playing D D? No, but I just have a great memory. Like I, I, I You have an oh dear God. I mean it's, wow. Research wow, last I've... week too, after our conversation, I researched how you could play it online and stuff and like I got I was I was into it. I mean I was I was I, our conversation <laughs> kind of jazz, got me jazzed. Like I it, it it's interesting. I mean, so this is digressing into a deep dark hole but i i do think that whatever sort of corporation like owned the rights to dungeons and dragons and would publish the publish publish the materials to people who played it required like you needed a dungeon master's guide and that was a quite expensive book and you needed a, like a player's handbook that listed the different spells that you could cast and you know what the different armor classes were and 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 all the different character classes and th- and that cost some money deities and demigods I, remember that one book deities and demigods that gave the the st- statistics for like Hercules and Thor and all this like uh, like I never had that one, but there was a, there was a series of like like monsters compendiums that gave oh you yeah all yeah the all the other monsters, the monsters. Yeah. and I had the I had the expansion pack for like the outer planes, and that was all of the like avatars and you know the the like rare dragon classes like the. You know, I, I forget what they were, like the celestial dragon and, and uh, you know, the different demons from the abyss. World, World of Warcraft. Like, oh, my goodness. Like all the hit points that these things had. World of Warcraft could fill this void. I might reopen my, my World of Warcraft account because it does kind of simulate. No, I was going to say, I was going to say, so I think that the company that used to publish all that stuff, I think they either like went bankrupt or they must, I think they might have sold the rights off. Because there was this period where I think it just kind of fizzled, and everyone was going to Nintendo. Yeah, and, and now Xbox it's back, and and now it's back. And I think, unfortunately, probably you know, it sucks for the people who 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 developed all this stuff that they probably couldn't last long enough for the kind of Game of Thrones phenomenon and for all this online uh, multiplayer stuff. Uh, must be Ga- so Gary Gygax. To- Gary Gygax was the guy who invented it, right? Gary. Gary. Still, yeah. I, I, he he passed away a long time ago, or not that long ago. But I remember there was a there was an obituary obituary about him in the Economist, I think, a few years back. Boy, we're really off track. Dungeons now. and Dragons. Where were we in the Economist? Nobody. That means somebody at the Economist played Dungeons and Dragons. Well, well, so interesting. Do you think there is a relationship between sort of you know what's going on in let's say reality, whatever that is? And what our appetite for entertainment is? This was kind of our topic last week, sort of. We Did we about, talk about this last week? Didn't we talk about expectations for like Game of Thrones and how like people have lots of criticisms, even of great episodes, and that and yet we mm-hmm. have like we are so relatively passive and we have low expectations of our public life and democracy, like that all of our high expectations are not in our shared life together, but they're in entertainment because that's where really our, our energies are focused. Right. So, but going then one layer deeper, what entertainment satisfies us? I wonder, does that depend or is that, you know, what's the relationship between the entertainment that satisfies us and what's going on, you know, kind of in, 
in, you know, in, in reality, in, in the political culture, in the social culture, economically. I mean, so I think I can just think of a couple data points, for example. Uh, so one is this question, like, is there more of an attraction to fantastic entertainment because of what is going on in quote-unquote reality? And I'm also thinking, and I, I don't know if we talked about this earlier on a podcast or where I had the conversation with, but somebody to me, somebody made what I thought was a brilliant observation, so it's not mine, but I wish I could claim it, that, you know, it was maybe like 10 or 15 years ago where the fantasy that appealed was, you know, the, like the vampire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was like the highest form of the undead and they like these beautiful creatures that couldn't die and they had the super intelligence and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, fast forward 10 or 15 years and it became the zombie, which is kind of the lowest form of undead. It's mindless, it's stupid. All it has is this unthinking hunger. It's ugly. And is that just, you know fashion or is the fashion of our entertainment in fact informed in some deep way by what we have a hunger to see or what i think that one need thing to escape from maybe i i think it might be related but i think in times of scarcity our fantasy is abundance and in times of relative abundance our fantasy is scarcity so like we've we've lived in the west in a time of relative prosperity since the economic crisis at the end of the it was like around 2007, right? 2008. Since then, you know, there's been a relative abundance. And mo so many of our, our fantasies are, are post-apocalyptic scarcity, right? What happens when it all gets pulled away, like The Walking Dead or Battlestar Galactica or uh, Revolutions, all these things. So I think that then when we have anxiety about scarcity, we, we fantasize about abundance and things like that. Hmm. So that's interesting. And not that we need to go directly into politics, but what the first thought I had in reaction to that is, you know, you think about the U.S. 2020 elections then. Um, does that kind of analysis that sort of we fantasize for the opposite, does that help us to think about, you know, who who could be the Democratic nominee that, you know, best sort of captures the fantasies of... Um, we'll fantasize about boring least, and normal. Mitt Romney should become a Democrat. This is his time. <laughs> this is the Mormon time. Yeah, maybe. Not that there aren't Democrat Mormons. There are I mean, Harry Reid was a Mormon, former, is a Mormon, former Senate Majority Leader. But there are several prominent Democrats. But most of them tend to be these days Republican. So let's let's uh, let let's get a bit rooted in the ground here. What? You know, what in the last week has really been... Well, we, we talked yesterday about some things that... Well, you told me that there was a poll that said that when you look at, like, was it... Oh, yeah, was yeah it let, Western, let me tell you this. So, was it Western so, people and institutions? So I, I think this is really good research, and I'm going to give a plug for um, the Edelman Trust, E-D-E-L-M-A-N, does really great research. And one of the things that they have is what they call the Trust Barometer. And uh, every year they go around the world and they ask people in their country, how, you know, how much do you trust public institutions in your country? And uh, I mean, last year, really interesting. Uh, I mean, right near the bottom of the list um, are the UK, the US. There are countries that even score lower, lower but like we're talking about 40%, 35 to 40% of people trust public institutions in their country. Um, 45 to 50? No, more like 35 to 40. Oh, 35 to 40. I was going to say 50 and, seems and, like. And most of the advanced liberal democracies are in are underwater on this score. I think there are a couple that aren't. I think Canada is around that mid midpoint. I think that New Zealand is somewhere in the positive 50s. But if you want to look at the the countries, well, what do you think? Where where would you think are the countries that are going to score high on that question on that survey when they ask people? Trust in public institutions. Canada, yeah. I would have said, was high. I would say the. I, I, I would guess the Russian Federation is low. Hmm. I, I I would think, you know, I mean, th this is interesting because totalitarian. You you wonder like, I mean, my instinct is to think that authoritarian means you'd have low trust. How do we? Th I, yeah, this is so okay. So low is the UK and the US. So what would high be? I mean, you th is it like Scandinavia? Because they I'm, seem pretty uh, happy. Know, they seem pretty happy. I'm. Uh, keep talking for ten seconds. I'm. I'm. I'm looking. Denmark. Twenty nine. Norway. Fjords. <laughs> Sweden. 
Switzerland, oh, very, I, Switzerland, I think would be lower than Scandinavia. I'm looking at. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm down. Okay. I. I got to upgrade to fiber or something. I'm. I'm. You do. You need to. Is it expensive in England? It's well. It's interesting. I don't know. What What would it cost you to get fiber to the home where you are in, in the U.S. Uh, with a cable TV package and everything, probably like one ninety something a month. That's like cable fiber at like high speed. Like I have. Okay. Everything. I think we. I think that's like the highest speed from Comcast. I'm thinking not fiber, but the the cable that's hot, the equivalent of fiber. Like you know, you either go with the phone fiber or the cable line fiber. We use the cable line fiber, but so tell me what the highest is. Okay. Now that now that All you're, right. at, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you the highest internet so, speeds I'll, are, are I'll, Korea, I'll, not not England. <laughs> so you're right about the bottom, which is Russia. Um, the UK is down there. Oh wow! So the US, this is interesting. From 2018 to 2019, US trust has actually gone up about six or seven points. We're making America great again over here. Yeah, that's right. To 49 percent. Um, Canada's up at 56% this year. China was at the top last year and is at the top again, but even higher, uh, 79%. China is is 79%. Leads the world, 79%. And it it changes a bit when you look at, uh, so they divide uh, the general public, general population, and the informed public, which I think is people probably with a university degree. Um, and for the informed public, uh, in China, again, leads the world and is the highest 88% of, uh, informed public in China trust. Uh, That's astounding. Yeah, that is pretty astounding. So the, so uh, if you are in, in educated, the US, 60%, if you are well-educated <laughs> in China, you think that the, the, the governing apparatus, which is fair to say, right? Relatively autocratic. There's high trust there. That fascinates me. So I think then it becomes, you know, does it? So uh, does that surprise you? Because if you think about, you know, you know, trusting public institutions in terms of, um, you know, taking taking care of business, right? Um, in terms of giving us what we need, you know, maybe one would think, well, I mean, democracy is just so messy. Right, we we spend so much time debating over where you know where we should go, whereas um, you know an authoritarian state can 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 sort of shortchange that. I actually, you know, I I but I I mean I think that's kind of a like a surface level analysis. I think that the deeper analysis to take away from that is how important. Um, different institutions in society really are. And, you know, there are so many institutions within the liberal democratic world that, you know, I think that in our ideology, our self-governing, right, the media, uh, you know, the academy, um, the courts, for example, um, but that in le- in leaving them to become self, to be self-governing, um, they're susceptible to being corrupted by a number of other sectors in society, right? Whether it's whether it's government or whether it's you know um, you know the rich or whether it's corporations or what have you, and so you know maybe that contributes to a sense of distrust in my institutions that you know, I'm not really sure if they are self-governing in the way that they are expected to be. Versus in I mean in China. None of these institutions are self-governing, right? They are all um, invested by the state, and and they're kind of you know well invested by the state because the state really gets that um, inculcating certain perspectives through uh, the public and higher education system, inculcating pr- certain perspectives through the media, you know, through the private sector, are all really important to aligning uh, s- society to sort of a single political program that um, they do seem to perform that role quite coherently and quite well. So, I mean, may, may, maybe that's it, that, that uh, part of what we're seeing here is the kind of, you know, the, the, the coherence of the system. Whereas you look across, you know, look across Europe, look across North America, there, there is so much kind of 
you know, failing faith in the public system and instead people taking change into their own hands, right? Like whether it's this yellow vest movement here in Europe, and I know it's in Canada as well, um, you know. Uh, the yellow vest movement is, is the populist the, movement no one likes. Like it's this sort of people's <laughs> movement that no one gets behind. Or, you know, but it's only one example, right? There's this Extinction Rebellion that's, uh, you know, making very significant waves here in Europe. I don't know if it's such a big movement within the U.S., is it? Do you, do you have students who are walking out of schools on Fridays to protest against ineffective action on climate change by political and corporate leaders? No. <laughs> uh, so, no. Well, no. It's, ha- it's, it's happening on a pretty big scale in Europe right now. I don't think that. I don't think they have any of that. It it, it, it expresses a kind of just complete loss of faith that, um, you know, the formal leadership layers in society are taking some of the big signals about what matters to the well-being of the, you know, of those who lack political representation um, seriously at all. And I think, you know, and (sighs) this is all – we we will eventually figure out how this all connects. But I think it also relates to what we were talking about earlier with the kind of, you know, the cavalierness, to borrow your language, with which, um, say, Donald Trump can, can, can kind of say whatever he wants to hear about himself in public, that, you know, many people have become, you know, far less engaged with the news or even the concept of the news, right? That there is a a kind of, um, you know, a, a well-curated set of events that we should understand each day uh, and instead has abandoned that for, well, this perspective makes sense to me because I don't really believe in the capacity or the, or the integrity of anyone to curate what should inform me on my behalf. Yeah, so I I think this is interesting. I, I'm thinking about De Tocqueville and Democracy in America, right? Early 19th century book. Many people say the best book on American democracy in the sense of it. I mean, no, he, you know, there you could point to lots of details that he maybe doesn't get quite right or misunderstands because of language barriers and as a Frenchman and things like that. But generally, understanding like the the how democ the, what how democracies work and their pathologies and things like that. It's it's still widely read. And he thinks makes this observation that equality and liberty don't always necessarily go together, right? So you you know, ho, 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 ho. equality and liberty don't always go together. Okay. That right. Th- that you know, yeah. he's a guy that I think he can trace his origins back to like William the Conqueror or something, right? And his family makes it through the French Revolution, even though they're of an aristocratic class. And he sees like in the French Revolution, there's liberty established, right? There's the despotism and things are overturned. And yet then uh, there's this increase in equality, the citizen equality, and that, but yet it becomes despotic and tyrannical in a different way, right? And and then you, you, you see Napoleon come in and, and, and restores equality under the law, but then is again, appoints himself sort of emperor. And you have these tensions between liberty and equality. And and he thought that one of the dangers in America is he thought that Americans will always favor the latter over over the former, that they'll choose equality over liberty. But then he thought that there are things that he thought that you could have a, a, a tyranny of the majority, right? Like public opinion. So he, he observed somewhere that you know, in the North, a white man could marry a black woman, but he wouldn't because of public opinion. Like he just, they just won't do it because of the tyranny of public opinion. He says Americans argue, argue, argue until a majority is taken place. Then they kind of silence dissent at times, he thought. But this is a kind of question because, you know, you, you have these twin values, liberty and equality, and ideally in a modern democracy. So what China seem, can probably promise is high on equality and low on liberty, right? Like you have an autocratic system. That can deliver, you know, like it, it because it, 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 it doesn't have to deal with elections and, and things like this that are surprising in any event. Right. <laughs> I mean, the, the party has a sort of long term vision for control and, and things like that. And so you can you can promise relative equality. Right. At, at, at the cost of liberty. And that's an interesting thing that, that you you although you could argue in, in an American context, we might be high on certain liberties in this season of life right and yet hmm. and yet there's rising income inequality and people feel like corporations have all this power but that's it's an interesting thing that that how you know 
th- this careful balance of equality and liberty, which which de Tocqueville thought there were some interesting things in American life that helped preserve the balance. He thought, for instance, that r- religion was a help because it didn't it didn't just undergird the majority as it did in Europe, but it, it, there were there were competing religious visions and things, and there was a morality without a sort of conscription of the majority and, and association, like civil society. He thought that all these associations that Americans participated in that that they learned democratic values in those, right? That the civic society was, but I, as you see, as you see, like I think in in hmm. Western democracies, these these sort of civil civic spheres decay a little bit and our public life get more corrosive maybe that reflects you know the the lack of trust we have in institutions and things like that i don't know yeah it's interesting i mean there's a lot of it would be great if we could kind of resurrect the talkville today and have a conversation with him about where the world is at now and and you know have a conversation with his ideas because you know, I and, and I think the part that I remember most clearly from you know when I read Democracy in America was, was his his stuff about uh, civil society and kind of just ranting on like like these people they they get together and they they weigh in politically on like everything like it's crazy and I think where he was coming from was a much more aristocratic uh, Europe. Where, you know, there was still kind of an idea that, you know, the the aristocracy runs the country. And yeah, it's a democracy, but, you know, there, there there's a, an elevated class that, you know, decides things. And, and, and then there's sort of the rest of us or the rest of people who kind of go along with it. And then he comes to America. It's like, whoa, everybody is kind of, you know, taking part in, in the life of their community. Yeah, yeah one of the things in the 19th century that would freak out with the freak out diplomats from Europe when they come to this new country is they couldn't figure out who their class was. Because everybody in America dressed the same, right? Like, like you know, you can figure out, well, this person's dressed this way, so that I know what class they are. And you come over here and like, well, everybody wears this similar clothes. The, the class, like, we don't have uniforms over here. What's the deal? Hmm. And so, but, then, so, you know, but then if we had him alive today, we kind of shop him around the world and, you know, and show him some of the, you know, some of the data um, on like, you know, trust in, trust in democracy. I wonder... I wonder how his thinking would evolve. So I'm 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 looking at this at this data now, and you know, so one of the questions they ask is trust in NGOs, which is an imperfect proxy, but it's kind of a proxy for civil society. Would you Would you agree? I mean, yeah, yeah. I think you know, yeah, I think yeah. people so, people get into non government or like you know the United Way or the or you know the people. And, and, you know, I just did a 5K race for this Woods School, which is a school that it's amazing. It's kind of it's right around the corner from my house. But they, you know, for disabled people, uh, severely disabled children and adults, and you know, people in America have all these causes, right? And and non governmental organizations, charitable organizations. I mean, that's a kind of association, right? People raise money for it. They do 5Ks. They do all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, that's probably a proxy. Okay, so um, China again scores number one in the world. Seventy-four percent trust NGOs. U.S. fifty-two percent. So just, just over half. And uh, and so is that an expression of of liberty participating in an NGO? I guess. Well, hmm. it's see. I, I I don't know exactly what point I want to make yet, but I'm. I, you know, your your comparison of equality and liberty has me creaming back to the years that I did my. You know my field work for my doctorate in China, sort of, and and that was all about talking to people about their political values. And you know when I wanted to kind of you know both signal to uh, my opposite from across the the interview table that I you know I was willing to explore the you know beyond my own boundaries of ideology, and and I wanted to have a kind of you know let's have a cool deep conversation about stuff. I would I would often throw on the table the question, you know, what is liberty? And, you know, depending what their poison was, they would often kind of, you know, sit back, take a drag on their cigarette, you know, take a swig of their of their liquor, whatever they were drinking, and, and give me that kind of, you know, yeah, man, that's deep sort of look, <laughs> right? <laughs> Because, cause, you know, for a lot, like, you know, for a lot of, I think, Chinese who, you know, responded positively to all sorts of things in, in this survey about trusting government, um, 
you know, you it's not at all clear. Or they would want to, they would need a lot of explanation about how, you know, the the ritual of casting a vote is um, connected to liberty, and 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 would need even a lot more explanation that. Like and it's the fundamental part of liberty, and, right? and even and, casting a vote and, would be would be only part. I mean, De Tocqueville looks at America and thinks, you know, traditionally republics thrive on virtue, and and that he doesn't mean private virtue. Like he means civic virtue that the citizenry are very invested in life together and the public good, and they're not just not just hmm. at the frenzied election time, which even then he could see, but also in between elections, there's a real passion for the public good hmm. and, and for public service and being invested. And he worried that he said, you know, Americans care about hmm. themselves as individuals and making money. And one of his fears was that that couldn't hold together a Republican ideal because it's too self-interested. It's too, it's not, there's not a high enough civic virtue. Now, well, China, I mean, I guess you could say, Hey, yeah, exactly. You, so you, you, I think you we're, we're in it together. It, yeah. We're in it, you know, and, and maybe it's autocratic, but there's this thing, Hey, we're, we're one. Well, I think there's also, um, you know, I think maybe you've put your finger on it, is that maybe it's just clearer what the purpose of public institutions is in a country like China, where it's not just that we're one, but like we have work to do, or at least we've been socialized, we've grown up in a narrative that we have work to do, that uh, we are a country that, you know, used to be, uh, you know, the big show in the world for centuries or even millennia, depending what history book you want to read. And in the 19th century, you know, as as Europe was trying to carve up the, the world amongst themselves, we were humiliated, right? They came into this country, and they took over Shanghai, and they took over Qingdao, and they sacked Beijing, and they took away all of our fancy gold objects. We had to pay reparations called the Boxer Rebellion, stuff like this. And so the 20th century and, you know, communism, you know, really put us behind the eight ball. And so especially the last sort of 40 years has been about catching up to the rich world because they've got all this stuff that we can't afford and, and they can do all these things like land on the moon that we can't do. Uh, so catching up to the rich world in order to, you know, undo and purge ourselves of that humiliation and ultimately get back to a position of of global leadership. And it looks like these public institutions in our society are helping us to get there because, boy, you look in the rearview mirror and we're certainly closer to that goal. We're certainly more respected. We're taken more seriously. We have more weight and voice and people invite our leaders to you know, the big global gatherings and they want our involvement and they want access to our markets. The tables have turned. And so we are we are making clear progress on what the public collective objective is. If I think of, you know, um, you know, here in the UK, for example, where we decide, okay, we're gonna we're gonna break away from the European Union. I mean, one of the things that was strongly lacking, and this is now ancient history going back to 2016, but, you know, I was here during that sort of referendum, um, like the, 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 the campaign leading up to it. And, you know, there just wasn't a very clear narrative for why. Like, why? Why the European Union? Why this political project? What is it for? Most of the argument made for remaining was that this is going to be an economic catastrophe. This is going to be bad for you as an individual or for us as an economy. But but beyond that, there wasn't some kind of project that made it clear that this would be a, a step backwards if we went this way. And, and and similarly, I think in the US, I mean, there's so much acrimony now. I mean, just sort of, I, I, can, I can feel it from over here on the other side of the ocean, the kind of, you know, the, the partisan, like it's not bickering anymore. That is not nearly... A, a, a sufficiently vigorous word for the the kind of oh give me the give me the exact English word Scott that it, it's 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 like acrimony it's it's disgust right with 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 our political opposites and, and contempt yeah, contempt it's, it's, there's a great content, Arthur it's, it's contempt, Arthur Brooks just sure. wrote a book about this about 
Okay, What's killing it's, it's, us uh, is not division or our argument. It's contempt. It's. It, I mean, okay. There's all the okay, study so, so of marital gonna, marital no, no, couples. No, no, that no. That's where marriages break down. It's not fights. It's not even okay. infidelity. It's contempt for the partner. Right. Okay. So the so it's contempt now, but kind of so what that we are contemptuous toward one another. Like what what is the shared project that we are harming that we hold and 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 throw this contempt at at one another and and like it it seems like the answer is i don't know historical or it's a a kind of you know a manifest destiny that maybe no one really believes anymore because we've kind of lost this narrative of the shiny city on a hill but but so if there's no compelling reason to work together towards something then, you know, fighting each other seems fine, as long as I win. Yeah, now, I think that's, well, a point well made. I think that, and you look at American life, the whole life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, this idea that pursuit of happiness, I mean, I think the founders were thinking, eudonomia, you know, the Greek word, the good life, not just pleasure, but but the good life, you know, and and I don't think Hmm. we have a shared, I don't think we interpret it that way anymore. I think people, so it's, it's, you know, when George H.W. Bush died, there was talk about how he came from a class where they're privileged and white and there was inequality. And yet there was also mm. an expectation for pe- men like him, people like him, and mostly men, right, males, that they had to do public service because of their privilege. There was this sort of thing that their privilege was not something to just be self-indulgent with, but they had to, they ought to give back, right? And that is just sort of one view of the good life. But there's not, it's not as though that's a shared value in American life that you ought to care about the civic good and we ought to you know we, we all and, and for all our disagreements there are some things that we're in it together i mean i I, th- I think that is so hard to find i'm sure it's similar in the uk the shared vision of uh, our well, life together and and sort of having that in some way collectively advanced despite our disagreements and different perspectives so you know this is interesting because we are and you know everyone younger than us is even more so you know, we are kind of post-Cold War generations. And, you know, during the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, maybe that was a, a, a big part of what kind of kept the, the disagreements on, on the healthy side of contempt, which was we are in this historic struggle against, against communism. And 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 the history, the future of the world is at stake, and and for that reason, you know, we 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 form these grand alliances. We don't exactly think the same, but we're aligned on this NATO. Yeah, right? yeah, and think European of before Union. the Cold War, before the Cold War, the post-war. So you had the late forties, fifties, before the Cold War, rebuilding. We've defeated totalitarian, you know, Nazis and you know, totalitarian totalitarian access axis versus the allies of democracy and and so there's this civic pride and 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 the post-war generation the 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 veterans are coming back and the gi bill and there's this this robust sense of civic life and public life and then com then com, the cold war you over again you have another over against yeah i think that those things probably keep the contempt at a lower temperature and so you wonder if hmm, i mean is this maybe part of what uh, I'm bouncing around again, but if you look at sort of what is fueling populism in liberal democratic world today, I mean, is it that there is, you know, in the absence of a clear enemy, there is this kind of void of like what mobilizes us? And so whether, you know, you point to, you know, immigrants coming in these hordes or, um, you know, radical Islamic terrorism or China. Right, we got to catch up with them now. It 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 taps some some uh, capacity within within our sense of identity, within our sense of civics, to work toward uh, the collective good of us. Yeah, it's interesting too. The, the the populism that we're seeing in the United States and parts of Europe, it it employs the tools of the, what was seen by the right as the sort of hard left, things like identity politics, things like all truth is political, that, that sort of stuff. That's, you know, in the 80s, you could, you know, like 
people are writing books about the danger of the left and, and, and relativism and all this. Now, the populism employs those tools. You've got white identity politics, grievance politics, right? You've got this idea, you go at the post-truth society, how all truth is political. You, the things that cons- that used to worry conservatives about, you know, quote unquote, post-modernity, that they're now cons- the, the populists employ in the sort of acrimonious debate. Hmm. <laughs> it's strange. It's, it's very strange. No, no, no. You know what I was doing? <laughs> I, 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 I committed the cardinal sin. I picked up my, my phone and checked the text message. And um, I, I missed everything that you just said. I'm sure it was eloquent. It was. I'm sure it was great. It was, it was something about populism. Well, yeah. No, I was just saying, I said it's interesting that the, the, the populism today in, in, America, in America and parts, parts of Europe employs things that scared the hell out of right. conservatives in, say, the 80s, you know, that the, the, they saw as tools of the far left, the identity politics, right. racial ethnic identity is a sort of ultimate, uh, the all truth is political kind of deconstruction. Now, the populists use that stuff. There's white identity grievance politics, and there's there's this kind of all the, you know, the all, all truth is political. I mean, Trump is the king of this. And, and this is, you know, so it's interesting how that, contributes to the division things that the right used to decry that now part of it because most of the populism is a lot of it's on some form of the right not exclusively but but that now it's employed what you know used to scare people on the right so it's interesting because remember you you've now once or twice mentioned this uh this bill clinton line about you know democrats are there to um remove the lines that shouldn't have been drawn and Republicans are there to draw the lines. Yeah, to remind me. So conservatives are there to remind us what lines shouldn't be crossed, and liberals are there to remind us what lines we shouldn't have drawn in the first place. And so has that responsibility then now flipped? That there are lines being crossed that shouldn't be crossed, and, and, and liberals need to need to draw those. Yeah, I think around norms of public life, it is it's flipped. Mm. It, it, is, it is people from the center to the center left that are in the position of, of defending certain traditions rather than sort of being the prophetic critics of, yeah, it's interesting. I, I think, I think, I mean, you see that in, in the, um, in your U.S. politics in, in, in sort of the response of the Democrats to the kind of norm bashing that is occurring under the Trump administration. So like right now, I mean, the, the stonewalling Congress and, you know, we're, we're just not going to comply with your subpoenas. Um, that I, you know, there is this reticence that if 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 we just go, um, if we throw the norms out of the window as well, then we're then we're never going to be able to get back to them. I think there is some kind of um, sense that I guess we've got to be drawing the lines now, with you know the kind of hopeful optimism that you know when there's a change in the White House that we are going to reestablish what the norms of, you know, sort of constitutional governance need to be. But there's a sense that may, maybe this is like, but if we, if we don't, if we don't play by the rules now, then no one will remember what the rules were. Whoever's in power four years from now, eight years from now, and, and kind of the only way to get back to constitutional government will be a revolution where we, you know, come up. With then the problem is everybody which, says, but we're disadvantaged. If the, if, if we're, playing by the rules and the other side's not, you know, sure. it, it goes back. I mean, this is the tension, right? Because once nor, I mean, so much of, of democratic life is norms, not rules and laws. Right. And so once you, the horse gets out of the barn, it's so hard to get the horse back in. And so this, I think kind of coming full circle, you know, this is why, um, you know, survey data about declining trust in public institutions is really concerning. And, and, and why one thinks that, you know, it's the task of bringing norms back into democratic life it is actually much bigger than the behavior of the political parties. Yeah. It, it's also, you know, it, it's also the behavior of media. And that's very difficult because it's entirely driven by commercial interests. And the commercial interests are entirely driven by sort of optimization algorithms. And division optimizes, like, you know, sexy, sensational things that divide people is what optimizes eyeballs so so you know that institution now is so driven by um uh, sort of algorithmically measured profit motives that the kind of editorial responsibility of curating this is what we think as the fourth of state the 
civil society needs to know about is just blown away. Uh, this is to know, tell Phil profit profit margin. Yeah. I mean, it kind of it it it, it overwhelms civic virtue. Right, right. And so I think it's profit margin there. I mean, you see it like with the courts, you could argue that it's it's sort of politics and, and the political divisions are are um, are taking advantage of what is possible through the political process to politicize the courts and 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 um, uh, erode the independence of that institutional pillar of of democracy, you see the same thing happening in higher education, in the academies, sort of where, where expert opinion and and kind of expert models of looking at what is going on in the world are co-opted by either you know political or commercial interests. And I know that that story is much farther away from people's awareness, but trust me, as kind of a an academic insider, this is also happening. And so you know where whereas one would kind of think of, you know, one of the strengths of democracy is that it is kind of a, you know, there are multiple pillars holding the house up and holding up these norms that actually when you kind of do a a wider health check on democratic institutions, that's when it starts to get scary. And you realize that, you know, what is happening in our political parties, which is just one of those institutions, is being reflected in the erosion of all these other pillars. Yeah. Right. So versus, you know, the, the kind of the, I, I, I think, and, and, and again, this is kind of a, maybe an undertold story, but when you look at the support for um, the political system and for public, public institutions in China, each of these pillars, you know, media, the party, the academy, the courts, are are very strong. In fact, have been strengthened over the last you know several and many years to serve the function that they serve in 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 that in that society. And 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 I'm not judging one or the other, but I'm remarking that you know whereas you can make a very compelling case that a lot of the democratic pillars are eroding, um, and and that and that the the decline in trust is. <sighs> What do I want to say? There's another perfect English word that I'm missing, but the decline in trust is kind of being um, like it's an emergent property of the whole system. Yeah. Right. And 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 that where you would hope that there would be some kind of stepping in and and shouldering the weight of a temporary weakness in in one of the pillars, instead you just see that they're helping one another to to erode faster now if we had an engineer on the podcast they could give us a great metaphor for <laughs> structural for, yeah right. for what yeah for a structural collapse and what engineers then need to do i don't i don't know what an yeah, engineer it's, it's interesting though like what what <laughs> how does a bridge collapse right it's when there's external pressure on an internal fissure right there's like a crack in the bridge right and then the x ex- do you really know what you're talking about or you're just talking yeah no i mean think about okay. this like like okay. there's something structurally weak right and then the external pressure, right, hmm. is 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 weighing on the right internal fissure, and then the thing breaks. Like hmm. you, I mean, that I mean, I, we're probably seeing that we're we're probably seeing that certain external pressures are revealing where the fissures are, where the internal fractures are. That may have been, yeah. Well, if we could resurrect Tocqueville, I guess democracy in America would be <laughs> a very different book. I wonder if, or maybe it wouldn't be. So maybe ter- it would in, be a. In, maybe we just write an in, afterward. In terms of landing the plane, let, let me ask you the question this way. Do you think that it would be um, uh, sort of hmm. – okay, I can't, I can't ask the question as artfully as I want to because we're kind of live off the cuff. But w- the question that I want to ask is a, a, a better version of this. Do you think it would be a good idea or disastrous for, um, you know – People with influence and and maybe with an audience, you know, maybe some of the Democratic nominees would be one example uh, right now to say we need a constitutional convention. That's an interesting. That's there. You know, there is a movement in America right now on the right to have like if you get 30 states or something, you can call one. 
Like, like the states can call for one, you know, okay. if enough states say we need one. Yeah, I, I, I okay. that's interesting. I mean, I don't, I think it would because it, I mean, because you have, I mean, like Supreme Court numbers and, 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 and composition, you know, some people, are, I, think, I think it was Buttigieg who said, yeah, like maybe we need to pack the court to redress what's happened recently and, and, and also find ways to depoliticize it. There's some interesting, so, I mean, that's a big chunk of the constitution, at least the constitution that people are aware of, you know, there's. There's gun control, there's abortion rights. I mean, so much of the agenda in the United States right now seems to be about, you know, what are what are the powers and responsibilities of the different branches of government? And is this stuff legit? Yeah, it's interesting, though, the, the, the means to amend it are there. So, like, if we can't use the current means to amend, like, would we be any better with a more radical approach when we can't? We, it's hard for, to imagine, like even one amendment going through. So yeah, and but that, but then that's what makes me think that because that's just thinking too small, right? Um, if you're trying to push one amendment through, then everybody sort of within the pol- current political configuration plays that game. But to call for a constitutional convention is to say. Um, let's put it all on the table. And you, know, you, th- you think just the, wipe sheer, the, board clean. the sheer mass, the volume of things up for grab would sort of displace the ossified political well, pers- I, I perspective guess, and I stances. Guess, I guess to, to return to our bridge metaphor, pretending that we, anyway, none of us, I think, I, I don't have a degree in structural engineering, so I, I don't Nor know. Nor do I. About. But, but to return to our bridge metaphor, um, if, if 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 the bridge needs renewal, I kind of imagine what you do is you shut it down and you put all the scaffolding around it, you know, because you kind of got to do it all at once, right? You got to take the you got to take the the load entirely off this bridge with some temporary scaffolding and supports and these like big barges that you bring in, and then you you replace it. You probably update it right with new materials that weren't available when the bridge was built. And 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 I wonder if that's. I mean, I, it's bold. I'm, I'm not, it's bold. I'm not. Yeah. What I, what I'm what I'm suggesting is, I wonder if this would, in a way, kind of just inject inject a, a kind of new sense of possibility into the discourse. You know, as, as a kind of what if, right? Well, what if we did like if if we allowed ourselves to like just stop hating and contempting one another, and say, okay, you know, because then it also raises the question like do we still want to do this together and 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 at least the the threat that we might say no and end the project here maybe helps people to set aside some contempt and really look at what is here that we want to preserve and not continue to yeah to the, the possibility that the marriage could end might keep it together like realizing right. that it could end might keep it together that's right. all right. right all right i i yeah. I, I like yeah. it i mean possibly it's a bold, I mean, yeah. bold suggestion hey hey I, i'm far enough away that i can throw stones and <laughs> i love it i love it well I, I wanted to land on something practical so you know wholesale constitutional reform seems exactly like a, this is an everyday know, thing. one takeaway unfortunately i only have that one so it's a pretty thin list well, for our next episode, we'll try to come. We'll try to land the plane closer to the ground. But you know, yeah, right. for that as as, as as for today, that'll do. All right. Well, we'll leave it there then. Thanks, my friend. Always mind blowing. Thanks for listening to the Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.